Now, if you look at the numbers, Vermont has the third highest number of scare and rider visits of any state after California and Colorado. We have 22 scare areas. We're within a five-hour drive of 80 million people, and we get, you know, 4 million scare and rider visits. So that's a huge demographic, and nobody was really serving them well. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast explores the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all Storm Skiing Podcasts and content as soon as they're live. You can download the Storm Skiing Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Pocket Casts. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Episode 10, Lisa Lynn, co-publisher and editor of Vermont Ski and Ride and Vermont Sports. What is the epicenter of Northeast skiing? From my point of view, no contest. It's Vermont. This is not a knock on anyone else. Don't take offense, New Hampshire skiers, Maine skiers. I love your mountains. Love your vibe. But Vermont has more of what makes the Northeast the Northeast than any other state. Think about it. Four of the top five mountains in the region are in Vermont. Jay Peak, Stowe, Sugarbush, Killington. Are you any of those out of the top five? It's hard to do. I listen to your reasoning, but for sheer totality of the ski experience, those four are tough to beat. What's the fifth? Maybe Sugarloaf, maybe Sunday River, maybe Whiteface on its best day ever. Those are the only three in the class with the big Vermont brawlers. And yes, those are big, expensive mountains, but Vermont also has some of the most unique indies in the country. Name a better collection of indies than Mad River Glen, Magic, Smuggler's Notch, Bolton Valley, MRG in particular. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've skied. This one needs to be on your list. Zoom down to small ski areas. Vermont has some of the most legendary. Cochran's especially. But also some terrific little community areas like Northeast Slopes, Brattleboro, and Escutney. The story of Escutney's comeback as a community-run area is really tremendous. And I didn't even mention some of the biggest. Mount Snow, Stratton, Okemo, or mid-sized areas like Bromley or Burke. And you all know that the spine from Sugarbush up through MRG, Bolton Valley, Stowe, Smugs, and Jay gets more snow more often than any place else in the Northeast. If you're gambling on any given day, throwing a dart at the dartboard of the season and saying, I'm going to go skiing today, your best chance for good conditions are on the spine and you know it. Nothing is better pound for pound than Vermont. And no one knows Vermont better than Lisa Lynn. Lisa and I connected just before the holidays, and she has so much to say about the state and its incredible mountains and history. Let's do it. My guest today is the co-publisher and editor of Vermont Ski and Ride and Vermont Sports. Vermont Ski and Ride is a glossy quarterly magazine with a print distribution of 30,000 and is the largest outdoor publication in the Northeast. It focuses on all there is to do in the Green Mountain State's mountain towns, ski resorts, and backcountry. Vermont Sports, a news magazine, covers outdoor sports, travel, and adventures in nine issues year-round. You can find both distributed via print, digital, e-newsletters, and social media. She is also a vice president at Addison Press, parent company of both publications, and former executive editor of Ski Magazine and editor of Eating Well. Lisa Lynn is my guest. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's actually great to be part of this. On July 22nd, Vail announced its acquisition of Peak Resorts, 
which brought its total number of mountains in Vermont to three, along with four in neighboring New Hampshire. What was your first reaction to that announcement? It was interesting. I think we all expected Vail to keep acquiring, but what was really fascinating was that it acquired on such a big scale and that it acquired Peak, which was the only other publicly traded company. And it acquired a lot of smaller resorts that are not in what are traditionally kind of the big mountain regions. So it was looking at the Midwest. It was looking at you know some of the more southern parts of the Northeast. And that really gave Vale a very interesting and new demographic. On the plus side, this gave Peak Pass holders a way to upgrade to a lot more access for not a whole lot more money. And actually, the Epic Local Pass was quite a bit less expensive than the full Peak Pass, and it gave the exact same access. It was full, no blackout access to all of Peak's mountains, so Mount Snow, Hunter, Wildcat, Atitash, you know, some really big, notable, popular mountains. Um, so for people who ski a lot and think ahead, it was pretty good value, right? I think it's great value. I think you know, what both uh, Vail Resorts and Altera Mountain Company have brought to skiing are two things. Number one, there's certainly the value proposition, which is contingent on buying a season pass. This is very good in that it lowers the price of season passes. It also encourages people to ski more frequently, and it encourages people to ski around. Where it may not be quite as good for the industry is that often the ticket price windows are very, very steep as they're trying to discourage you know, walk-up purchases. So that could discourage, you know, say, a new skier or somebody who's bringing a friend along for the first time. Not only do they raise the the day ticket prices, but Vail in particular has been very aggressive about ending partnerships with ski clubs, with Liftopia. So they're they're cutting off all these other conduits to cheaper prices that people who don't either don't think ahead to buy the pass or can't afford the pass really don't have any other choice other than to walk up to the window and pay whatever they're demanding. Um, in particular, I think the Peak had this product called the Drifter Pass, which was $399 for people in their 20s. And I know a lot of people, myself included, that's a time in your life when you don't necessarily have that disposable income available, right? So what do you think the long-term effects are of eliminating these discounts uh, the, the ski clubs, the Liftopia, the, in, in the Drifter in particular? Uh, frankly, I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity for other resorts. And we were already seeing resorts like Sugarbush, which is the one that really pioneered the 420s pass for people in their 20s. And that's still around. And uh, I just spoke with Wynn Smith uh, on Monday, and he said that's very likely to stick around. Oh, you are seeing a lot of smaller resorts offer all sorts of different discounts. Uh, Magic Mountain even has what I think is a really smart idea. They have a pass that's only good at Christmas week. You know, this is a time when a lot of other places are super busy. And for a lot of skiers who are, say, you know, just getting into the sport or maybe don't have that much time, the week between Christmas and New Year's may be the only ski vacation they do. And if that's the case, why not go to someplace like Magic where the lines might not be as long, the ticket prices might be a little bit less steep? And you can have as much fun there, I think, as you can anywhere. Yeah, and maybe a little more so because if you go to Hunter, if you go to Mount Snow, these are places that are, are very busy. They're sort of like the first most obvious choice to a lot of people coming up from cities or, or who are just looking for a little bit bigger mountain than maybe the local they worked that they uh, learned on. So it, 
it may, in a way, kind of encourage more people to ski, right? Because when you go to a Magic, you're going to be able to ski a lot more than if you go to Mount Snow on a Saturday and have to wait in line all day. Well, it's interesting. We just uh, devoted our whole holidays issue to what we call the soul of skiing. And we have a, a really nice six-page feature in there on Magic, which is independent. And then we also did a roundup of the best little hills you've never been to. And these were, I think, six nonprofit ski areas around Vermont where you can ski for as little as $5 a day. Oh. Um, places like Cochrane, I think you can do a uh, Friday night ski and dinner for something like $12 to $19. So these places really are still wonderful conduits, wonderful ways to get into skiing. They have a lot of kind of personality and quirks. They may not be the biggest or the most glamorous or the steepest of all the hills, but they're attracting a really strong core skier. And if you go there, you're going to actually see some really, really good skiers who just want a different type of experience. So those smaller areas you're talking about, are you focusing on, uh, it sounds like you're not just focusing on the beginner areas, like maybe a northeast slope. So do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, those ski areas that you that you featured and why you chose them? Um, well, as I mentioned, we we wanted to focus on uh, what we you know the the working title was "It Takes a Village," and Abigail Giles, who's our assistant editor, did a really lovely job, um, and she talked to a number of different areas that have different ownership structures. So, Escutney, for instance, um, is still largely sort of a backcountry. It no longer has a lot of the lifts that it had when it was a big ski area, but it's coming back, and they've put in a T-bar. And they have night skiing, and they have citizen races. Brattleboro Ski Hill is really um, kind of a very cool place. You know, it's a very short slope. It's only about, uh, you know, a few hundred vertical feet. But that's where you can ski for $5 for a day. Then you have places like Cochran's. And Cochran's has turned out, I'd say, more than 11 World Cup racers, all part of the Cochran family. Wow. And if you go there, you're still going to see Jimmy Cochran, who's an Olympian, managing it. You're going to see Barbara Ann Cochran, who um, is an Olympic gold medalist, teaching. You're going to see her sister Marilyn, who's another Olympian, there teaching. And you're going to run into some of the best ski racers out there. And these are all just you know people going out and having a good time on a slope behind the old Cochran family farm. And how important are these small, affordable ski areas, you know, Escutney, Northeast Slopes, Cochrane, these sorts of places, as the day tickets tick up at the larger mountains? How important are they to, to maintaining new blood coming into the sport and making sure we have that next generation of skiers? Well, I, th- I think they're huge. You know, if, if you look back historically, you know, Vermont has 251 towns. And at one point we had 119 ski areas. And, you know, the ski area was something like the playground. It was where, you know, where kids went after school. A lot of Vermont towns still have what's called Friday programs or Thursday programs, where basically the public school is shut down for the afternoon, and all the kids have the opportunity to go skiing, often at either a free or very reduced cost. So PICO actually will host, you know, farm towns from Addison County, and, you know, kids who might not normally see a lot of snow or ever be near a mountain, you know, get a chance to go and try skiing. Um, you know, Stowe has a Friday program. The Mad River Valley has one of the oldest historic school programs 
where kids go up and ski at Mad River Glen or at Sugarbush. And skiing was viewed as, you know, lacrosse or soccer or other outdoor recreation is viewed by many schools today. And both Vermonters and increasingly out-of-staters can also, you know, participate in some of these programs. Right. And a lot of these smaller ski areas, I know you just mentioned some pretty big ones that that were uh, hosting these programs as well, but a lot of these smaller ones are actually volunteer operations, right? Yes. Many many of them are. And it, it really, it takes a village. You know, they're... Many of these people have other jobs, and they're you know, just sort of helping out. And you know, mom's running the rope tow, and dad's you know, maybe teaching, and or vice versa. So, are we in an era where increasingly only a big corporation can afford all the things that go into running a ski resort? Because you look at a place like a Scotney, and it's and it's maintained by volunteers, and that's terrific, and it's it's a great resource. But is that a sign that? If you just want to throw up a, a rope toe in your on the back of your farm, that's probably not a sustainable business anymore. <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit because we also recently ran a story about backyard rope toes, <laughs> people who are doing exactly that. Um, you know, I, I think the question is sustainable business. Obviously, you have magic, which is you know sort of seen its ups and downs and financial viability. However, when a group of 16 investors came together and you know, basically purchased it, you know, and saved it from impending bankruptcy, they created a really smart plan. And these are people, you know, who went to Dartmouth, who have business degrees, and they've been executing on that plan. And, you know, Magic is now, uh, you know, I think, closing into its third or fourth year as an independent ski area. Yeah, Magic Mountain President Jeff Hathaway was recently on the show, uh, and, and we had a nice conversation. Do, do you think that it is the right management? Because that's a ski area that was – actually closed down for quite a long time. And it's a big ski area and, and an important ski area, and, and it's hard to imagine it not existing, but for, for five or six seasons in the 90s, it just wasn't there. But now they have this group, like you mentioned, and they're they're investing in it. They put in the new chairlift, uh, which should be online shortly, um, expanding their snowmaking pond. Was it just a matter of right place, right time, or, or, or is it just that important to have the right people running it? I think the right people and the right branding is critical. You know, the the one thing that uh, you know we are seeing is that skiing is as much about travel as it is about going up and down and up and down and up and down on lifts. And I think increasingly, and especially in the east, where we have you know more than twenty ski areas, that people want a sense of place. They want to know when they go to one mountain that it has a different personality from say the mountain that is an hour drive away. And increasingly, the places that are creating those personalities and building those brands, places like Mad River Glen, places like, you know, certainly Sugarbush with its sense of community, um, even, you know, places like the Middlebury Snow Bowl, which, you know, is a college-run ski area and has its own personality, its own quirks, its own kind of brand to it are really attractive to a lot of people. And some of those people are the ones who don't necessarily want the highly polished, highly corporate feel of a larger resort. You have in Vermont maybe one of the most unique ski areas in the country in Mad River Glen, um, which is the only mountain in the region that doesn't allow snowboarding. Uh, and it also has the nation's last operating single chair, at least at a ski area. What, what is it about the culture of Vermont that lets a throwback like Mad River Glen thrive right next door to a mega, mega resort like Sugarbush? Because I think if you, if you came up with a business plan 
and Sugarbush was there and Mad River Glen wasn't. You said, okay, right next to Sugarbush, I'm going to build this ski area and there's going to be no snowboarding and it's going to have a single chair and it's just going to, you know, not have a ton of grooming. Uh, I don't know if that would be a, a great business plan, but it works. What, what is it about Vermont that makes that work? Well, it's really interesting. If you look back at the history, we, we did feature stories, and all of our stories are online at vtskiandride.com. Um, but we did feature stories last year on both Mad River Glen and Sugarbush. Mm-hmm. And Mad River Glen started out as a reaction to Stowe. Oh. Roland Palmetto and some of his cohorts sort of got tired of how glitzy, and this, you know, this is back in the 1950s, how glitzy Stowe had become. And they wanted to find a mountain that was going to be steep and challenging and that would be a little bit more low-key. And so they started Mad River Glen, and they intentionally kind of kept it that way. And then just a few years later, um, Damon Gadd and his wife kind of started Sugarbush as a reaction to Mad River Glen, and it became something that was, at the time, super glitzy. So I think you know, what we're seeing is sort of an evolution of different brands in the same way that you might see an evolution of you know different sodas. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of a flavor for everybody. Mad River Glen has done a tremendous job, and it's probably some of the strongest branding of any ski area, I think, in the country or even the world, in that it has always maintained an attitude. And a lot of that attitude came from, you know, sort of one of its earlier owners, Betsy Pratt, who is a really iconic figure. Um, and just sort of, I think one of her sayings was, I don't own a mountain, I steward a mountain. Heading uh, heading north a little bit, um, I think what everybody wants to know is who's going to buy Jay Peak. So there's a <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people in the running. I think Vale has said we're not interested. That doesn't mean they won't buy it. But um, so the town is valued at around 124 million. Uh, there are estimates that it will fetch more between 80 and 100 million. Uh, Altera, of course, is still a potential acquirer. Um, what are your were your thoughts on where Jay Peak might go? I think Jade's Peak is a terrific mountain, and I believe that you know they've, they've built some really interesting assets. It's a challenge in that they are not very close to major urban areas. And increasingly, what we're seeing is there are sort of two different types of companies that might be interested in acquisition, and one's more on the real estate end, one's, or I should say more than two. You know, there's certainly the ski areas, and places such as Vail Resorts has prioritized buying areas that are near big population centers or which have big databases of pass holders. So Jay doesn't really fit into that profile. Places like Altera have, I think, focused on buying you know, all-around resorts that have a good infrastructure. And you may see somebody going for Jay Peak that isn't even in the ski business because it has the water park, because it has hotels. So it will be very interesting to kind of see where that falls out. Do you, do you think that there's that we're better off if someone in the ski business buys it though? Because it, it seems like the areas you're seeing that have trouble, like Jay Peak, um, or like Saddleback, for example, it, it, they're it's a it's a tough business. And when you get someone in there that doesn't have experience with how to deal with the cyclical nature of it, um, with the seasonality of it. Uh, that have in, in folks who maybe have other agendas, as happened in the JP instance, it seems like we're better off with the big conglomerates buying, even if that means some higher lift ticket prices and such. 
Well, I think what big conglomerates, whether they're in the ski business or not, offer is they have they have the financial wherewithal to make the investments that are needed. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the ski business, and increasingly where we're seeing investment is actually in summer. You know, you certainly look at the build-out that Killington has done with 35 miles of mountain bike trails, or even what's going on at Smuggler's Notch, where they've built, you know, two world-class disc golf courses and are attracting, um, you know, the biggest disc golf tournaments in the country. Yeah, so you think it's more a matter of just getting the right group in with some imagination rather than necessarily someone who has to be in the ski business, right? Because I guess guess the Magic folks didn't necessarily have a ski area background, and they seem to be doing everything right. Well, I'm I'm not privy to all the financials, certainly either at Magic or at J-Peak. You know, so I, I think ideally you want somebody in there, though, who has a long view. Winsmith did a terrific job, you know, buying Sugarbush, which was part of the American Skiing Company group. And American Skiing Company, you know, built up a lot of resorts, started, you know, piling on new acquisitions, and eventually went bankrupt. You know, Winsmith came on board, and he had the capital through his uh, both investment groups and backers. He did an EB-5 program, which was successful and completely legal, and he was conservative. And he really turned around, I believe he spent more than $70 million making Sugarbush what it is today. So were you surprised when he sold to Altera, when he sold Sugarbush? I wouldn't say I was entirely surprised, and largely because we had done a big story on the 60th, and in that interview he dropped a few hints that <laughs> I think one of them was life begins after 60 or begins again <laughs> after 60. Right. Um, you know, and he certainly, you know, I think he's 70 now. So I'm not surprised that he was looking for a successor, what I think is terrific is that he really vetted. He had a number of other offers as well, I believe, mm-hmm. and he wanted to find the right buyer, and he's going to remain. He's going to remain through a transition, and I don't think much is going to change at Sugarbush. In the same way, since you know Altera bought Stratton, um, you know, there's not been many changes in terms of the personnel there. And instead, what we're seeing is an investment. We're seeing investment in summer infrastructure. We're seeing investment in lifts. Their um, brand new mountain bike park, and my hope is that's what we're going to see at Sugarbush as well. And, and what do you think we would see at Sugarbush? Because that, that mountain, I mean, when I'm there, it seems like it's in great shape. Like, what what do you think Altera could provide that Wynn wasn't able to provide on his own? Well, Wynn has a whole wish list of things. Okay. <laughs> and uh, some of those are actually in our story. We have a, we have a story on the uh, on the acquisition in our current issue. One of the things which he talked about recently was that he would love to put a hotel and conference center or at least some sort of mid-mountain lodge in. Right, some some big uh, some big center like Grand Hotel, like the, uh, like the one at Sunday River, something like that? I'm not sure if I would use Sunday River as an example. I would uh, you know, perhaps maybe think a little bit more like uh, you know, Spruce Peak at Stowe. Right, okay. So do you think that when selling to Sugarbush, is this the end of big indies? Because that was the biggest one left in the East. You know, you have Smuggler's Notch, I guess, is probably the biggest one left, and that happens to be right next to Stowe. And there's always these rumors that Vale will buy it and combine it with Stowe. Um, is it, like, can you imagine when that, when the current owners put it up for sale, that there's anyone else that can buy these things other than these big corporations? You know, five years ago, we wouldn't have said that Altera would have come out of nowhere to buy, to form and buy things. And Altera is, you know, part of the the Crown family as a 
significant stake in uh, KSL Partners, which formed Altera. And they're primarily a real estate company. So Altera was actually not a ski company before it started making its acquisitions. Yeah, it did have that, that intra-West DNA, though, right? Well, it bought I, intra-West. Right. That, that was not its first you know, acquisition. Right. And it was, then they put the, the ski folks in charge with Rusty Gregory, who'd run Mammoth for quite a long time. It, it just seems like like if Sugarbush can't, it doesn't have the capital and wherewithal to make it on its own, it, it seems like almost no one could, because that is probably one of the best-run resorts I, in so the country. So I, I, would, I would challenge that, because okay. Sugarbush had their best year ever last year. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't think Sugarbush sold because it didn't have the capital and the wherewithal to make it on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that I think it has been successful. Um, I think it was just good timing in terms of you know where Win was in his personal life, and also, and he said this in a, in our article that seeing Vale Resorts buy Peak Resorts was a little bit of a tipping point. And this suddenly gave Vale access to a lot of names, and it was going to be hard to you know, compete with that, you know, the sheer volume of what they were doing. Right. And when also, he pointed to a couple other factors as well in his decision to sell, uh, climate change being one, um, increased cost of regulation in Vermont being another. Um, what can you tell us about the cost of regulation in Vermont and, and why Wynn would have pointed to that? You know, that's, there are any number of factors that you can, you can throw in there. Um, you know, frankly, I'm not sure if, regulation is as much of a challenge to most ski areas as um, simply hiring. You know, what we hear, I'm on the board of the Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance, and what we hear is the biggest challenge is simply finding the personnel to operate. And I, I think Wynn and many other ski area operators would support that statement. Many of them have been having job fairs. Many of them are using... Um, you know, foreign J-1 visa applicants, uh, those are people who can come and work here for a certain number of months under a visa to fill many of the jobs. And, and those are uh, those are federal programs, right, the, the visa programs. So is, is yeah. there anything in, in particular uh, in Vermont in the laws or regulations that makes it more difficult to manage a ski resort in Vermont than, say, elsewhere? You know, people point to Act 250, which is our, our land use um, law. And it has, you know, very strict um, permitting on, you know, everything from building and, you know, looks at wastewater. There are 101 different regulations within Act 250. Act 250 is currently going through an overhaul, um, I think, with the purpose of simplifying it and making it easier to develop. As you as you mentioned, uh, Sugarbush had its best season ever last year. Uh, Vermont recorded more than four million skier visits. Uh, Mad River Glen had its longest season ever. Three mountains were open till May. Uh, we hear a lot about the ever precarious state of the industry. Are these numbers reason for optimism? I think they are. Yeah, I, I think it's really encouraging to see that sort of energy, and and I think due credit is due, or you know, credits due that uh, both Altera and and uh, Vale Resorts' past programs have really encouraged a lot of people to try out the East or to, you know, buy more season passes and ski around some more. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I was going to ask about your reaction. You know, we're we're in season two of Icon Pass. Um, we had several seasons of Max Pass and, and Peak Pass before that, and we've had sort of had Epic Pass around since since Stowe came, although that was just one mountain for a season or two. Um, now we have the Indy Pass with a bunch of mountains in the region. Uh, how do you think these passes have influenced the culture of Northeast skiing? 
You know, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I really can answer that. Um, I will say that Northeast skiing is very different. I, I was an editor for Ski Magazine, and I had an opportunity to really look, you know, ski all around the country and all around the world. And when I came time to decide, you know, what mountain town do I want to live in, I chose Vermont. And the reason for that is there is a very different culture here in Vermont. There is a really strong local culture that's sort of tied to that, you know, 251 towns. You can, you know, we also have a really strong weekend culture. And those two things together really make for a great sense of community. You can go to pretty much any ski hill in Vermont, and you'll see many of the same people weekend after weekend. You'll get to know them. You know, they'll become friends. And there's this amazing community that, say, if you're, you know, traveling to a Vale or to a Aspen, you know, for a long weekend or a week long, you may not run into those same people, partly because the mountain is big and partly because it's a different type of uh, different type of ski area. So since you moved back to Vermont, and I'd imagine that in that time, you know, we've seen Vail move in, we've seen uh, American Ski Company come and go. Um, I, I don't know how long you've been in Vermont for, but as as these larger corporations buy these mountains, uh, in, in Stowe, you know, was, was one that was, you know, had this very independent spirit. I know they were owned by AIG for a while, but, you know, have you felt any difference in the mountains with these bigger companies moving in over the years? Uh, well, I actually have had a house in Stowe for a long time, so I've skied there for a long time, 20 years. And, you know, the one difference I see is that a lot of the locals don't ski on weekends because it's so crowded. Hmm. And that does and- sort of impact that, that sense of community. And there is a very different feel to a Vail Resort-owned operation than there is to others. Is there any way you can characterize that? Like, how does... How does skiing still feel different today than it did 20 years ago? Uh, there, there are fewer events. Um, you know, there, there used to be sort of a lot more springtime parties, pond skims. Um, you know, definitely a, a really big uh, tailgating culture, and some of that, some of that's still there. But it, there are fewer sanctioned events. There aren't the demo days that there used to be. And, and would you attribute the crowding directly to Epic Pass? You know, it's hard to say if it's just Epic Pass because I think certainly there were a lot of other ski areas. I know Sugarbush was very crowded. I know Killington also had its best year. You know, some of that is obviously we had a terrific season last year. And but, so when – sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and but, you know, the numbers do speak for themselves that, you know, Vermont had one of its best seasons ever last year, so there were simply more people all around. Right. And, and do you find that uh, the locals you knew that don't ski still anymore, do they go over to Smuggler's Notch, do they go down to Bolton Valley, or are they just not skiing? Uh, they're not skiing weekends, so more of them will, you know, try to work a ski day into midweek, which is, you know, that's good for, that's good for the ski area too. It gets, you know, a lot of these areas are empty. I shouldn't say empty, but they're very quiet on midweek. I mean, if you want to get a lot of skiing in, go ski on a Wednesday. Right. Yeah. That's 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 kind of what I try to do is take a vacation day when it snows and go up and hit Southern Vermont, and it's amazing. I mean, you can get. 30,000 feet of vertical without even trying um, on an afternoon just because the, the lift systems are so good and they're really made to accommodate 10 times more people than are on the hill on a weekday, right? So yeah. it's pretty nice when I can make that happen. Um, and that, that's the magic formula every ski area is after is they all want to figure out how to, you know, 
how do we get more people to come here on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? Right. Are, are there any that have been able to figure that out? Well, I think things like, you know, ski bum races, many of which happen on, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, are one way. You know, it's a great way for the locals to get out, um, to kind of rebuild that sense of community. Those are a lot of fun. You know, we all go up to the Middlebury Snow Bowl on a Friday afternoon, and it's great. It's everybody from, you know, 70-year-olds who are, you know, perhaps not the strongest skiers to former, you know, NCAA college champions. And are those hosted by the ski areas themselves? Uh, well, the the ski areas obviously help put up the gates and support the races, but it's different, you know, just different groups who put it together. I mean, we have a, a wonderful uh, former pair of ski racers in town who own Two Brothers, which is a great tavern, and they've been sort of leading the Middlebury ski bum races for a while. And then there are great apres, you know, spots that get shifted around town after skiing each, each day. So uh, one number, just going back to Sugarbush for a moment, one number that I thought was was really interesting, um, and this was at their uh, Vermont Skiers Association annual meeting uh, back in June. They said that day ticket sales were up 27%, um, which also happened to be its first season with the Icon Pass. And day tickets at Sugarbush are not exactly cheap. Should we take this as a sign that the panic about the effects of multi-passes are overblown? I, you know, I, number one, I'm not sure if panic is the right word, and I'm not sure if that's why... Yeah, that was a direct result of the day tickets. Um, I'm sorry, of the uh, concern Multi-pass, about icon passes. Yeah. I know that Sugarbush has a really strong following among Vermonters, so it will get a lot of people who are you know live locally. They also have a um, four-pack pass, so you, if you buy early season, you could have gotten four lift tickets. I forget what the exact price is, but that may be counted in those day ticket passes too. Also caught up in the J-Peak uh, drama is Burke, which everyone kind of always forgets about. Uh, it's a really underrated mountain. Um, GM Kevin Mack was on the show recently, and we had a nice chat about that mountain. But it seems like the the sale is on indefinite hold, uh, according to the receiver, Michael Goldberg. Um, I have to imagine there's a buyer that could find the numbers to, to make it happen eventually. Would it make sense for, for whoever bought Jay to also buy Burke, or are they kind of just split now? They're very, very different properties, and I think that they may not appeal to the same type of buyer. You know, Burke is a terrific mountain. Um, Burke's busier in the summer right now, at least the Burke Mountain Hotel is, than it is in the winter. And that's mm. because of the amazing mountain biking trails um, that form the 100 miles of Kingdom Trails. Right. And do you, do you see any movement on that anytime soon, or, or, or are we just kind of waiting to see what happens? Uh, I believe that Burke needs to fulfill its job creation um, under the EB-5 program before it can technically be put up for sale, and I'm yeah. not sure if it's achieved that yet. You know, when Michael Goldberg came in, he made the decision to keep both Jay and Burke operating when he could have shut them down and said, no, let's sort, sort all this out. How important was it to keep both of those mountains going rather than let them shut down even for a season? I think that's vital. I think once you shut them down, you know, you there's so much – you know, deferred maintenance that um, you know doesn't happen. You lose the brand, you lose the loyalty, you lose you know really the heart and soul of what a what a resort is. Right, and and as you mentioned, there's quite a few lost ski areas in Vermont. Uh, are there any that? I, I should to- also add, I think I think Steve Wright has just done a phenomenal job as a general manager there. He's really, mm-hmm. I think, handled um, 
you know, handled the sale really well. I think there's a really strong loyal team up there, and you know, kudos to them for persevering through all of this. Yeah, and Jay seems to have one of the more loyal followings as well, because as you mentioned, it's pretty remote, but uh, folks find a way to keep it humming. It's a good mountain. It gets a ton of snow. Yeah, that that, that helps definitely. Um, are there any areas that have shut down in Vermont that you think have a chance of coming back? Well, Scutney is coming back, so there's there's a good one. Um, Magic didn't technically shut down, but it certainly was you know on the brink. It's coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, we are seeing a number of old ski areas being sort of resurrected as backcountry ski areas. And that's really interesting. We're really seeing, we're actually in our January-February issue of Vermont Sports, and I'm going to give you a little sneak preview now because it's obviously not out. We're doing an entire guide to backcountry Vermont, and we're profiling, I believe, seven or eight backcountry zones that have been developed for skiing that are mapped, um, that have some great little apres ski spots that are nearby, and have really strong organizations that are supporting them. Yeah, I read recently, and I can't remember the exact location, but there was it was up in New Hampshire where the Civilian Conservation Corps had thinned out some glades back in the 30s. Are, are these ski areas that same sort of thing, these legacy backcountry areas that have been around for a long time, or, or are they new areas that are being developed by a new generation of people interested in getting off the lifts, getting a little more exercise uphill? It's, it's a combination. So the first, um, I shouldn't say the first, but perhaps the best-known example is what happened in Brandon Gap. And the Rochester Randolph Sports Trails Alliance worked directly with the Green Mountain National Forest to cut a number of glades um, on Brandon Gap, which is right between Middlebury and Rochester. Mm-hmm. These were the first sanctioned cutting of glades on any national forest in the country. Wow. And it was really became a model. And I'll tell you, it's amazing to see what's going on there. If you go up there on a Saturday or Sunday, the parking lots are jammed. There are people all over the place, but there's a ton of terrain, and you can explore some really fun lines. And, and then you and have, you know, you don't have a big infrastructure, but you have Rochester, which is a very, very scenic little town um, just to the east, and then you have Brandon, which is another beautiful little town with great bars and breweries just to the west. And these glades were thinned recently, in the past couple of years? Yes. Yeah, that, that's, I believe that's, they actually have 22 different mapped runs now. Oh wow, that's that's tremendous. And so it's it's all just volunteer run, or, or there's an association, or how does that it's work? It's run through the Rochester the Randolph um, Rochester Randolph Sports Trail Alliance. It's RastaVT.com. And and what, how did they? Because it, it seems like these days it can be hard to get that kind of development through where you're where you're thinning forests and stuff. How did they sell that to the state and federal regulators? Like, hey, we want to create this recreation area where people can go up and they can ski down through trees. Uh, how did they make that happen? That, that, it just seems improbable, but that's, it's great that they did. Yeah. No, it's an amazing story. We, we've written about it um, fairly extensively. And again, you can see that at vtsports.com and at um, vermontskiandride.com. But there are essentially two real leaders, um, Angus McCusker and Zach Freeman, who lived in the area and said they were avid backcountry skiers and avid mountain bikers, and they had cut some trails on their own property and you know, sort of got the idea of like, hey, what could we do to help give some economic impact to these 
you know, rural towns. And they worked directly with Holly Knox, who was with the Green Mountain National Forest, and very carefully, very conscientiously mapped the areas, you know, documented what the environmental impacts were, worked with volunteers to cut trails that wouldn't minimize any kind of impact. And it's been a real win-win. In fact, we uh, we wrote about, there's a film that was done about the whole process called Leave Nice Tracks that we wrote about recently as well. And if someone's interested in going up and getting involved in that, how should they educate themselves? Because if you're just a resort skier, even if you're a strong glade skier, that's a whole different skill set and knowledge base that you need to be safe, to know what happens in emergency. What, what, what would you recommend someone who wants to get into that is a strong skier, but maybe just hasn't doesn't have any sort of backcountry experience, even if it's this sort of more controlled backcountry? I, I would say two things. One, you don't necessarily need to be that strong a skier. Um, you do need to understand that you are not dealing with groomed terrain. There are logs out there. It is very easy to get lost. Uh, so you should always go with a minimum of three people, and that's so that if one person gets hurt, one person stays with that person, and then the third person goes for help. You should always carry a compass. You should have, you know, ideally if you're going to be out of cell phone range, you should have some sort of satellite phone. You should have all the basic safety equipment that you need to spend the night in the woods. You know, we always think that Vermont is such a small place and, you know, it would be hard to get lost, but people can and do get lost on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, people get lost going off the backside of Killington, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we actually just did a, we have a story in our current issue, too, that uh, the Vermont State Police recently bought drones Oh, wow. which they're hoping are going to help uh, search for people. Well, it's cheaper than a helicopter, at least. Yeah. So these so these backcountry uh, areas, I don't know if I'm characterizing them right, but uh, is it is it mostly gladed terrain? Do they actually cut any trails? Uh, I wouldn't say they cut trails. So the difference between trails and glades is a trail is really a planned route that you could follow. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. It's like a road. You can see a direction. There are no trees in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. A glade is really thinning out what might be, you know, a fall line. You know, it's not zigzagging back and forth. So you're thinning, you're taking out some of the underbrush, but there's still trees in the middle. You're not smoothing out any of the boulders. You're not smoothing out the fallen logs. So all of those natural obstacles still exist. So all you need is snow to make it happen. All right. Um, you, do well, need, you do need a strong snowpack. Right, right. Moving back uh, south a little bit to Hermitage Club, didn't open last season. Looks like it's done. Um, assets are being auctioned off. I, you know, I drove up to Mount Snow in November uh, a few weeks ago, and the GPS happened to take me by a haystack, and I kind of stopped for a while. I looked up, and I was like, man, that's a great mountain. Um, it, it's such a shame to just have it sitting there. Uh, what do you think is in the future for that mountain? Is it is there any possibility that we ever see it become a public ski area again? Well, to start with, um, it hasn't been a public ski area recently. It was really open only to members of the Hermitage Club. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back when it was Haystack, it certainly was. It would be great to see that be open to the public again, and you know, even if it was just for skinning. Um, you know, my understanding is that Vail Resorts bought snow guns and has, have moved those over to Mount Snow. Uh, there's a fair amount of legal wrangling that's underway right now um, that is going to have to get cleared out before anybody buys it. Right. Well, they do have some very valuable assets on there, a six-pack bubble among them, some other chairlifts that are in pretty nice shape. Could you see it maybe becoming in a, in a Scotney where they put in maybe a rope or a T-bar and uh, you can 
take those as far as they go and then hike the rest? You know, I think anything is possible. The clubhouse, I believe, um, may be under separate ownership than the lift, so that would also change things. Right. But I should, you know, going back to sort of the idea of, you know, being able to hike and ski, there is also, I mean, there's a great backcountry ski, ski zone managed by a group called DHASH, um, which is creating a number of glades in southern Vermont. And are they going to be profiled in your story as well? They are. And so those those uh, ski areas you mentioned, do those range all up and down the state? Uh, yes, we we are going from basically, uh, you know, the Dutch Hill, um, which is one of the earliest ski areas. It was around from the 1940s to 30s, and this is called the Dutch Hill Alliance of Skiers and Hikers, and they've built out trails around the old Dutch Hill, and that's in oh, the nice. southern portion of the Green Mountain National Forest, all the way to the Northeast Kingdom Backcountry Alliance. Uh, looking forward to checking that one out. I want to talk about Vermont Ski and Ride a little bit. Um, Vermont Sports has been published for more than two decades now. It's kind of been a tough two decades for magazines in general, even national publications like Skiing Magazine, which was one of my favorites back in the day, has gone under. Um, what are some of the challenges you've encountered with this transition to digital media? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Vermont Sports is actually celebrating its 30th year. Oh, wow. um, this coming year, and you know, it's sort of like the old Mark Twain saying that you know, reports of Prince, you know, demise are are grossly over exaggerated. I'm amazed, surprised, and delighted that we've actually had our best year ever um, in terms of readership, in terms of advertising, in terms of revenue, in terms of distribution for both publications this year. And do you think that there's an advantage? In, have, in your regional focus, uh, in that you can engage with your subjects and readers in a way that maybe a magazine with a more national focus would have a hard time doing? Well, the reason why we started, um, or I shouldn't say started, but we turned Vermont Ski and Ride into a magazine is I used to work for Ski Magazine, and at the time there were six pages of editorial devoted to the East. Mm. Now, if you look at the numbers, Vermont has the third highest number of skier and rider visits of any state after California and Colorado. We have 22 skiers just in Vermont alone. We're within a five-hour drive of 80 million people, and we get you know four million skier and rider visits. So that's a huge demographic, and nobody was really serving them well. Plus, there are so many great stories around Vermont. We really wanted to capture not just you know, the stories about the ski areas, but the stories about skiing and the people who ski here and the lifestyle. And that's why, you know, we do a column called Local Heroes. And we do a column where we profile different dream homes and tell the stories of the people who, you know, wanted to build a house here and some of the really crazy or creative or over-the-top houses that have resulted. Um, we do a column on retro skiing and some of the history behind skiing. In this issue, it's about the... Uh, the 75th anniversary of the Stowe Derby, which is this really crazy cross-country race that starts at the top of Mount Mansfield and goes all the way into town. And we do stories like, you know, Doug Lewis, Olympic, you know, medalist, downhiller. He's the guy who's the announcer for a lot of the World Cup racers, races. He was at Killington. And he wrote about what it was like growing up at the Middlebury Snowball and how that helped him become uh, basically an Olympic downhiller. And is everything that's in the magazine available online as well, or are there certain things you can only get with the magazine? So the magazine is free, and it's actually distributed at 475 locations around Vermont, and we're in all the REIs as far south, I think, as King of Prussia. So we want people to read the magazine. 
Um, we don't try to hide anything behind a paywall. We are entirely ad-supported, and we've been fortunate and grateful to some wonderful advertisers for making that possible. So go out and buy their products. <laughs> um, but we do our, – our process is that we come out and print first, and then we do upload most of our stories to the website, and we make them available via our e-newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, which is free as well. And then after they've been in the print magazine and they've been on the newsletter, then they go up on the site and are open and we promote them via social media. And you mentioned that when you were you were executive editor at Ski Magazine, I have from 1992 to 96, is that right? That's correct. And you said they had six pages of editorial devoted to the East. Now, I still have, believe it or not, some of those ski magazines sitting on my shelf at home. <laughs> um, and, you know, I would always get very excited about them, um, but I did notice the the Western bias. Um, did you, at that time, agitate for, hey, we got to cover the East a little more? You have 80 million people. You have a huge skier population. These are a lot of the people taking trips out West. Um, they're skiing no matter conditions. Did you try to make that argument? Well, my first job there was as the Eastern editor, so I was charged with uh, you know, trying to trying to get as much Eastern coverage in there as possible. And did you ever push for more than what they had? Because you know the, the magazine was a couple hundred pages back then. I did, but you know the reality of it then, which is the reality of it today, and I think today you'll see even fewer pages devoted in you know any of the big magazines to the East. Mm-hmm. And the reality is there are not that many people in Colorado who are going to fly to Vermont. Right. Or even that many people in Texas who are going to fly to Vermont or in Michigan or in California. So we do have a strong following, but it's a very dedicated and very local following. Right. You know, that's a, a pretty long history in, in ski journalism, and, and you kind of went from the, the fat days to the more distributed days now where, you know, the, the ski magazines, the national ones, are, are very thin. What was it like to be in ski journalism back in the 90s, and how does that ca- compare to today? <laughs> so we would our fall issues I think were close to 300 pages wow yeah and it was we, we did a, a gear issue we did a travel issue I was the editor in charge of the annual resort survey for a while mm-hmm. um, I think I think the biggest difference and what I think is really missing from you know, both I'd say ski journalism and definitely unfortunately from the advertising Side is that we're not telling as many of the stories surrounding skiing. Mm-hmm. And skiing has such a great legacy. It's such a strong lifestyle. I think Powder does a terrific job of storytelling. And we're seeing, I think Backcountry Magazine does a really lovely job as well. But we're not getting a lot of that long-form storytelling that may not be about you know, the mid-mountain restaurant and the hotel and the long the runs are, how hard they are, where the lifts are, but more about the culture and the people who love skiing and who make it a core part of their lives. And those are some of the stories that we try to tell. Right. Well, uh, you're, you're doing a great job with it. Um, if people want to get Vermont Sports Vermont Ski and Ride, is it available through the mail, or do they have to find it at the REIs and all the other places you mentioned? You can subscribe. Um, mm-hmm. It's $25 a year to subscribe to each of them. Um, and we'll mail them to you, and we're very grateful for any kind of subscriptions. Um, but you can also pick it up for free. So, Great. 
Uh, well, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, what, what, is your, what does your ski season look like? Where do you like to go, and how much do you like, try to get out? I <laughs> I interviewed Bill McKibben a while back, and he said, you know, any times it snows, I try to go skiing, mm-hmm. and, and I'll subscribe to that. Uh, and I try to ski all over. I really, you know, I love... I I truly believe that each one of Vermont's mountains is unique and has a real flavor. One of my goals for this year is to ski every single one of them. I've skied most mm. of them, but I haven't skied them all. And do you have a favorite? Is there is there one you'd recommend? Like if someone's coming to Vermont for the first time, it's like what's the what's the must go to area? You know, I couldn't. That would be like picking your favorite child. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all unique in their own way. Do you try to ski outside Vermont at all? I do. I do. Uh, you know. I, I'm, I, I love backcountry skiing, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to get out to British Columbia a fair amount and do some cat skiing out there. Well, I hope you have some good trips planned this year, and I uh, hope we get lots of snow in Vermont so you can get out lots of skiing. Thank you very much, Stuart, and thank you for all you do. You do an excellent job with this. Oh, thanks so much, Lisa. I really appreciate your time today. I will talk to you soon. That's Lisa Lynn co-publisher and editor of Vermont Ski and Ride and Vermont Sports. So much going on in Vermont. You heard Lisa. She could have lived anywhere in the world and she chose Vermont. We're all very lucky you did, Lisa. Those two publications are telling the story of Vermont skiing in a way that no one else is or can. If you're not reading Vermont Ski and Ride and Vermont Sports, start. Another thing you can do, subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. This is an excellent complement to the Storm Skiing Podcast. Lots of editorial content that I send out each week. You can do that at skiing.substack.com. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Better yet, please tell your friends about the Storm Skiing Journal and podcast. Help spread the word. Do it on social media. Tell them word of mouth, however you want to do it. Speaking of social media, follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Next up got some really good stuff I'm working on. I'm not ready to talk about it yet. I don't like promoting interviews until they're recorded. And I'm really, I'm trying to get into a faster edit cycle here so that these interviews are as relevant as possible. A lot of the podcasts you've heard I recorded over the fall or the summer. My guests were extremely gracious with this. I just wanted to make sure I had stuff to launch with. They knew it wouldn't air for a while, but I do not want to make that a habit. So, I'll have some stuff coming very soon, maybe next week, maybe the week after. It's some really big interviews that you're really going to like. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.